knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner going, he's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up to what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi, and welcome to Theology Gals. Ashley is not with us on this episode, but she'll be back next week, and we have some great episodes coming up. We are going to continue our series on complementarianism. We're going to be having Amy Bird on to talk about women in the church, and we're going to be doing a wrap-up episode where we're going to answer some of your questions. So if you have any questions on complementarianism, be sure to call our voicemail and leave a voicemail. We'd love to be able to play some of your questions. And you can find that and all of our contact information. If you would prefer to write to us, you can email us at theologygals at gmail.com. You can find all of our contact information on the website if you Go to BibleThumpingWingNet.com and click on Theology Gals. Go to this episode. All of our information will be there, including our phone number, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail. And I should probably mention we are part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network, where we have, I think it's 10 or 11 podcasts. So definitely check some of those out, Bible Thumping Wingnut and Semper Reformanda and Shine as Lights. There's, there's a lot of them, so check some of those out. So we have a special episode today and we're going to just go to a commercial and come right back with our guest. This podcast is a member of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. All right, welcome everybody to another podcast episode with Semper Reformanda Radio. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. Welcome everyone to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. Well, welcome to the School of Biblical Harmonetics. Welcome everybody to Grappling with Theology. What is going on, guys? Shine as lights coming at you. Well, welcome to Slick Answers. Good evening and welcome to the Conversations from the port. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Bible Thumping Wingnut Podcast. The Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Ten podcasts, one network. Check them out. BibleThumpingWingnut.com. And we're back and we have our guest with us, Tyler Vella, and he is on the Freed Thinker podcast. And Tyler, what exactly is your podcast? Like, what's the focus of it? 
The focus is on apologetics and uh, biblical theology. So um, growing up as a, as a non-Christian, as an atheist, my um, dealings with apologetics and, and evangelism is really geared towards um, naturalism and the new atheism and that sort. Uh, but a lot of times I do rub shoulders um, with some other in-house uh, debates like the one that we're going to talk about tonight. Right. And I know recently you talked about kind of the hell, uh, annihil annihilationism. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and that was interesting. So I guess that I w just to give a little background, you, there was something that Leighton Flowers had written about and it kind of misrepresented something just kind of explain what happened there because basically Tyler has written a series that I'm going to be linking in our episode notes and so that's what we're going to be talking about and so I'm going to let him kind of tell you how it came about. Yeah so um, Layton Flowers wrote an article um, on the Servetus and Calvin affair um, indirectly about the the Servetus and Calvin affair so he was basically arguing that Calvin's what he'll call theological fatalism, um, which is a misunderstanding that he has of Reformed theology, um, led, led inextricably to Calvin's treatment of those who he said, uh, quote unquote, disagreed or dissented with him, right? He won't even call Servetus a, a heretic or anything like that. Um, and so he tries to use Servetus as what he calls an a, a valid ad hominem against John Calvin because he's trying to show that the way that Calvin treated or the way that he presents Calvin as treating Servetus is precisely because of his theological convictions. And so it's kind of an end and around way to try to critique um, reformed theology, basically. Okay, so basic, basically he's saying, yeah, it's because his bad theology that, that this thing happened. Yeah, he's saying it, it's because Calvin's theological fatalism, is his, what he thinks is really hard determinism, um, that leads Calvin to kind of have this view. This isn't from Flowers' article, but this is the sentiment that he's trying to get across, leads Calvin to basically say, you know, kill them all and let God sort out the bodies kind of mentality. He's trying to say that that's related to, to Calvin's theology, and if that's the outcome, then the theology must be problematic. Right. And, you know, it just occurred to me, some of my audience might not be familiar with Leighton Flowers, and so he is a staunch anti-Calvinist. Well, he says he used to be a Calvinist, right? He—it's he, it's like when someone says, I used to be a Christian. I'm sure you right. profess that. It doesn't mean that you um, actually, you know, understood it well or anything yes. like that. And from everything that he says about Calvinism, he either didn't understand it then or he's intentionally misleading what he understood now. So uh, either way, it's he, he's been he's been corrected so many times and yet he repeats the same falsehoods, really, that it, that it's that many of us are finally getting to the point where we're just like the guy is just dishonest now at this point. We, 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 many of us have been in the conversations where we know he's been corrected, uh, and and yet he still goes on as business with, as usual, like it never happened. 
So right, yeah, I've seen where he's trying, where he's representing Calvinism and just not doing it well. And usually, if someone, although I'm not sure, I know very many people who used to be a Calvinist, but um, some of the things he says, it's that's hard to he. Yeah, like you said, he may not have understood it or he's just being dishonest. So the first part of your series, you kind of talk about why handling history matters because Leighton Flowers doesn't really handle it very well. And I think in this kind of age of the internet, there's so many different, you see some people try to represent certain things and they sometimes are just plain dishonest, I think. And so you just talk about why is it important for us to handle history correctly, especially when we're talking about things like this. Yeah, so it, it, it's really important, especially like you said on topics like this one, because in order for Flowers to make his point, he has to build it on a historical event. So he has to, um, he has to correctly handle what happened in history. And to be honest, historiography is hard. It, it, it's not easy and we're, we're really influenced by our current cultural situations and assumptions and, and, and things of that, that nature that we, that we bring back into a certain time frame, and it'll bias us. Um, and I'm not a historian, I'm not a professional historiographer, um, but, but I, I try as hard as I can if I am going to deal with a historical period or a historical incident or an event to try to understand it as much in that historical context as we can. And part of this is not just because it's good history. Part of it is because I'm a Protestant and I hold to a historical grammatical approach to the Bible, which says that, you know, even when addressing biblical texts, the first task of the exegete is to understand the text in its original context, its original historical setting. Um, and sometimes, that's really difficult. Um, the example that I always give is Jeremiah. There's when Jeremiah actually gave the speech the first time to the live audience, and there's that historical setting. And then there's when Jeremiah wrote down his, his sermons and his prophecies and was giving that to a different audience. And so the way that he cast those is relevant to that audience. And so you have the historical text, the historical context of composition. Um, and then you have the context of the, you know, the later reading audience and all the way through to us today. And so dealing with historical context is, is vitally important to not only understand the biblical text, but to understand any historical event. And Flowers just is in, I don't know if he's incapable. I want to say he's incapable, but in, in this incident, he didn't do it. Right. Um, and especially, you know, he, he's, he's a professor. Um, he has access to all of the all of the theological libraries, all of the ATLA databases, the same things that I as a I mean, I'm just a master's student, but I have access to to all of the same type of databases that he has. Um, and to be honest, it, it wasn't, you know, a small amount of work to do the research, but it wasn't a massive amount to at least come to, you know, a general understanding that I present in the articles. Right. And I don't think there's probably too many Calvinists who've interacted on social media that haven't been, you know, someone comes along and goes, but what about Calvin's murder? So yeah. can you can you share the, the true story of what happened there? Because I think this is important and I think it's the thing that a lot of people want to know. 
Yeah. So I'll, I'll try to make it as, as brief as I can. I mean, I'm on part three of what's going to be a five part article series. And I, and I just finally got to the execution uh, of Servetus. So one of, one of the things we have to understand is that Calvin wasn't a 21st century American. Um, Calvin was a really, you know, a product uh, of the early Reformation. Um, you, you know, he's he's in he's in the 16th century. Um, the Enlightenment is, is just in its in its germinal phase, and so when we say something like Calvin is a product of his time, we need to understand what that means, and and we can't just dismiss that. Right. And so at that time period, they didn't have really the concept of the separation of church and state. They didn't have the concept of of widespread uh, democracy. They didn't have um, some of the things that we benefited from. Um, so that that's why, in one sense, I can look at Calvin and say, I think that what Calvin did was wrong. Um, but that's because I can critique that culture as a whole and say, well, they hadn't matured enough yet. Um, and, and I think that their views of the church and state, which are actually the relevant uh, beliefs of Calvin that would have led to everything, not his soteriological views, um, it, that, that was the, not only the prevailing view, but almost the universal view of everybody, Catholic, Protestant, Anabaptist, I mean, just everyone on the continent, that was the view. There's a, a you know, a minor literally you can count them on one hand number of people um, who were talking about separation of powers and how the state shouldn't use the, thor the, the sword to judge ecclesiastical matters. The question wasn't whether the, the state should, should handle ecclesiastical matters. The question was, well, how should they do it? Should they do it just for the second table of law? Should they do it for the second table and the first table of law? And so you have a bunch of these issues that come into play. You also need to realize before I kind of go into the details of it, the conflict that was happening because of the Reformation. Um, because of the Reformation, you have a massive split in Christendom um, that, that broke families and broke cities and broke nations right down the line. And you constantly go back and forth. We have a hard time wondering because, you know, we were post-enlightenment. We think individual conscience. We have a hard time imagining why in that time, when the king went Protestant, did the entire nation go Protestant? Um, we, we don't understand that because that's not the cultural milieu that we're in. But that's the cultural milieu that they were in. And you have this clash of Catholics and Protestants, and Protestants are trying to establish themselves. Um, they're trying to distance themselves from the crazy stuff that's happening with the Anabaptists, while at the same time showing that they are Orthodox uh, biblical believers, um, and, and at the same time being heavily um, <coughs> persecuted and martyred by Rome, um, which, by the way, is is kind of funny because if you if you actually count the body count between Reformed Protestants and those who held to a libertarian freedom, which would have been Rome uh, at the time, it, it's actually the the view that is closer to uh, Flowers's view that has the massively higher body count. So if, so if he wants to try to say that soteriology drives body counts, it, it's much worse on him. Um, but that, but that being said, so you have, you have two guys that are at the center of this, you have Servetus and Calvin, 
Um, they're both well known for the publication. It's just one is well known for you know being orthodox and def uh, defending uh, biblical Christianity, and the other one is well known among again Catholics and Protestants and everyone for teaching abject heresy. Uh, and when and we're, we're talking about abject heresy. Um, it's not kind of these intramural debates about super tertiary issues. I mean, this is a man who called the Trinity, uh, you know, a three-headed monster. He called Trinitarians worse than atheists. He said that the Trinity was an invention of the devil. Um, he started talking about how Christ was not was not begotten of God, that he was not divine. Um, he, he basically held to a version of uh, pantheistic uh, Sabellianism. Um, and he was condemned in every single municipality in Europe at the time, um, Catholic, Protestant, everywhere. Um, it's why he had to go into hiding as Michael Villanueva for so long for most of his life. So he's, 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 so Servetus is basically in hiding for most of his life. He gets a bunch of different jobs. He works for a bishop. He works in medicine. He, he kind of takes a break, break from theological writing for a while. And he's, and then once Calvin writes his institutes, Servetus writes a response called the restitutio, the restitution of Christianity rather than the institutes of Christianity. And in it, he challenges Calvin directly. He's writing under a pen name, um, but Calvin knows it's him based on the letters back and forth, which will be relevant later on. Um, and it comes out that um, Servetus is in hiding uh, in, the, in the home of the Archbishop of Lyon. Um, and so he, he's arrested and he narrowly escapes. And Servetus seems to be the, the starting point for the blame of Calvin, right? He thinks Calvin's the one that turned him in when really historically Calvin isn't the one that, th that turned him in. Um, Servetus uh, actually um, was turned in by someone who lived in Geneva, um, but he basically um, was this guy in Geneva and he was writing to his cousin and he was trying to tell his cousin basically why he didn't want to return, uh, return to Rome. Um, and it's because he thought the Catholics were not only problematic, <laughs> um, but also uh, he argued that the Catholics were uh, harboring, you know, one of the world's best known heretics in, you know, the Bishop of Lyon's own house, right? Um, and, and the conversation is between a guy named Detrier and Arnais, Arne, um, and Detrier is the citizen of, of Geneva. And so Arne basically goes to the, to, the, to the Inquisition, to the Catholic authority and says, look, you know, my cousin's telling me that we're housing Servetus. Is it true? He gave the information um, and they go and, and they arrest him. Um, well, people are trying to figure out if, if Detroit is correct. And so um, he's telling Calvin, look, Calvin produced the letters that you have from Servetus, right? You know, defend me, show, show them that I'm not lying. Um, and Calvin goes back and forth. He doesn't really want to, but he finally hands over the letters. And since Servetus had actually published their letters at the back of his restitution of Christianity, it was pretty obvious that, that he was one the same as Michael Villanueva. Um, and so he was arrested. He escapes, but he's burned an effigy in, in, uh, in, in Lyon.
right? So they, they basically, they had trial and absentia. He wasn't there. The Inquisition found him guilty and, and they, they burned him in effigy. So basically saying, if you come back, you don't get a trial. You've already been tried. We're going to burn you alive. So Servetus is on the run. And from all accounts, it looks like he's going to go um, somewhere in Southern Italy where he has some friends. But for some reason, he stops off in Geneva. And this is where all the problem happens because, you know, People will show quotes of Calvin saying, if Servetus comes here, he won't escape with his life and, and all, of this kind of, all this kind of thing. So, so he shows up and he shows up at worship service and Calvin points him out. <laughs> this right, is a, a well-known heretic. Preaching, right? Exactly. He, show, he basically shows up to Calvin's worship service um, and Calvin says, hey guys, that's Servetus. So he gets arrested and, and he goes on trial. There's a bunch of questions about why Servetus went to Geneva. And when you study the history of and what was happening in Geneva, about a month before he shows up, Calvin's already writing to people saying, I don't even want to be here anymore, right? It, it, we don't have Calvin as this unopposed dictator of Geneva. You actually have Calvin who's been uh, banished twice. He he's, not, he's not even a citizen. He's not part of the bourgeoisie class. Um, he's constantly being opposed by the city council, um, which is run by the Libertines, who are adamantly opposed to Calvin. Um, and so there's a lot of speculation that actually Servetus was invited by the Libertines to help kind of stick it to Calvin and get Calvin out of basically out of the pasture and run him off because he's already he's already thinking about leaving. He, he wants to he wants to just go somewhere else because he's tired of it every turn being blocked and belittled and having uh, basically no say. I mean, you, in Geneva, the, the, the state, the city was uh, separated into two powers. You had the, the city council and you had the consistory and the city council had matter all uh, was basically the public affairs and the consistory was kind of like a board of elders. It was a, it was a religious court, but they didn't really, it wasn't a court the way that we think of a court. And then the city council also had what's called the petite council or the little council, which was about just under two dozen members of the larger council, which is 200. And they oversaw, they oversaw a bunch of things, but they all, they oversaw major cases. Um, and so they got the Servetus case. The Petit Council is run by a guy named Perrin, who is the head of the Libertines. Um, Servetus is instantly given counsel uh, by Berthyler, uh, who is a Libertine. Um, I, I mean, I, it, it just it looks like he was invited. This is all planned out. He gets arrested. He gets counsel immediately. All of this kind of thing. One of so so this this is where the trial starts. A lot of people that, that pose this, like Flowers and like Viola and a bunch of the other anti-Calvinists and Dave Hunt and stuff, they'll pitch it as if Calvin is this dictator pulling all the strings and telling everyone what to happen. Calvin wasn't even the lawyer. <laughs> he was called basically as a theological witness to testify to what Servetus actually taught. Um, the first half of the trial was focused on those two personalities. Um, the second half of the trial got away from that and started getting into broader geopolitical issues. But, but Calvin, from beginning to end, has no authority over it. He actually couldn't have authority over it as a non-citizen and as someone who isn't on the council, let alone the petite council. 
So what happens as the as the court process is going is that Servetus becomes more and more hostile. And this is actually where it becomes pretty ironic because some people will blame you know, Calvin for being, you know, this, like, uh, like Flowers does for being, you know, this bloodthirsty, you know, dictator. He, you know, he was out there to, to, you know, get everyone who disagreed with him. But we have this letter from Servetus, one of his many, and he's writing to the, to the council and he says, whoever says this does not believe that there is a God or justice or resurrection or Jesus Christ or Holy Scriptures or anything only that everything is dead and man and beast are one and the same thing, right? He's talking about those who defend pantheism, which he'll actually be, I'll show that he affirms this exact thing, which is one of the reasons why he was found guilty. And he says, if I had said that, which Calvin proved that he did, uh, and not only said that, but written it for all to see to defile the world, I would sentence myself to death. For which reason, Monsieurs, I re request that the bogus prosecutor be punished according to the Lex Talionis and that he be held prisoner like me until such a time as the case is decided, a ruling for either his death or mine or some other sentence. And to this end, I hereby bring a charge against him according to the aforementioned Lex Talionis. I am willing to die if he is not proven guilty as much for this as for the other things, which I'll describe later. I ask for you justice, my lords, justice, justice, justice. And so Servetus himself is the one saying, look, if Calvin's accusations are right, that I hold to this kind of pantheism and I'm found guilty, I deserve death, right? So it's not, it's not just Calvin. Servetus himself believed that, and he actually believed that if Calvin was wrong, Calvin, according to the principle of Lex Talionis, should be executed if, if, uh, if he's proven wrong, right? So, so this isn't just Calvin. This is Servetus. So the trial goes on. It gets more and more complicated. Servetus keeps, if you read through the article, there's a bunch of stuff that happens. He keeps making the case more and more um, <laughs> hard for the libertines to side with him. Let's just say that. And he, he knows that before his case, there were actually two heresy cases in the same year that the Petit Council tried. And in both cases, exile was the outcome. And so as he starts to see that his trial isn't going his way, he says, hey, look, why don't we do what you guys did in these other trials? And why don't you contact the other four major cities in the area and get their opinion on it? Right. It's, it's his idea to do this. Um, and so they contact Bern and they contact Strasbourg and they contact um, uh, a bunch of, you know, four of the other uh, municipalities. And, and so they send out these letters and what happens when it comes back is basically every single municipality writes back, you guys have got to execute him. Everyone from Bern and Zurich and Basel and Schaffhaus and, and everywhere writes back, this guy, he, he needs, you have to execute him. You have to show the Catholics that we're not like uh, we're not like the Anabaptists. We have to remember that Munster wasn't in their so far distant memory. We're not like the Anabaptists. We take, we take this stuff seriously. We take theology and the Bible seriously, and we have no tolerance for heretics, right? Uh, so every single one of them write back. 
which then at that point puts the city council at a loss because now the city council not only has uh, has you know a, a heretic who has been tried in absentia and burned uh, in, in Lyon, he has every basically every other major Protestant municipality writing back saying, "Yeah, you need to execute this guy for the sake of the church." Um, what does it look like then for Geneva if they're the ones that are like, "Nah, we'll let him go"? Um, very, very problematic. Uh, I mean, this is a guy, there, there's an incident that happens in, in the trial to give people kind of a reference for just some of the theological positions he held. Um, he, he held for a form of pantheism, and this is what he was saying he didn't hold to, but this comes up early in, in early October during, during the trial. Um, Calvin basically shows from his writings that he holds to pantheism. And Servetus starts basically arguing that he has no doubt that everything in existence is of the same substance as God. So he points to the table, points to the bench, he points to the chair, anything that Calvin can point to. And he says, they're all of one substance of, uh, you know, all the same substance of God. They're all a manifestation of God. So Calvin basically has him in his sights and he and it, you, I can almost picture Calvin like either screaming this at him or like, you know, quote unquote, devilishly smirking at him because he knows he has him. He asked him if the devil himself is of the same substance of God, as God. To which Servetus replies, do you doubt it? Right. Wow. Basically saying that the devil himself is a manifestation of God. Right. He does this publicly in his trial. Right, so so when you when you figure the authorities in Geneva, the Libertines, they're they're the opponents of Calvin, but they're you have Servetus as this heretic. They're told by every municipality that they should be executing Servetus. They they don't want to come off as as the weak municipality um, during this time with all the conflict with with uh, with Rome, right? Because otherwise, Rome will then have a foothold to kill more Protestants for saying, "Look, you guys are you guys are all heretics, and look how much you guys love heretics." Um, so they don't want that. So they decide uh, to execute Servetus. Again, Calvin has nothing to do with the process. Right, except for being called as basically. As a theological witness. Right. Uh, he, he, was, he, was his, he was his accuser, right? He called him out when he came to church. Um, he, he, uh, his assistant was the prosecutor, so there, there's no doubt that he was helping the prosecution. Right, but but it's not like he was judge and jury, right? It's not like he was in any way the deciding factor. He wasn't even in the courtroom most of the days, um, it'd be, because he wouldn't have been allowed to. So the petite council comes back, and and with the exception of one person who's Peren, uh, they basically said, okay, we need to execute Servetus. Peren says, um, let's 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 scrap that. Let's take it to the full 200, the full city council, retry him and see what we get, right? This also lends credibility that the, the Libertines are likely the ones who contacted Servetus in the first place. So he loses and Servetus is, is set for execution. Calvin rushes to the city council and says, look, let's not be like the Catholics. We're not brutal. We're not out to just like torture people or anything like that. We don't want to burn someone alive, right? Make it a swift execution. If you're going to execute him, do a beheading, right? He loses that appeal. 
Right. So for again, for those people who want to say, well, Calvin is the is the dictator, you know, his 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 rule was law in Geneva. He couldn't even get the manner of execution changed. Right. Um, right. Exactly. He did not you know, have sway. He had he had no sway, especially with the libertines. Um, and, and, and he loses that appeal. And so he spend he spends actually the night in Servetus's jail cell with Pharrell begging and pleading and, and evangelizing to him and asking him to repent of his heresies and to come to be, you know uh, believe in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, spends almost the entire night with him, pleading with him. Um, and, and he comes, he finally leaves just, you know, defeated. Uh, Servetus isn't going to repent and believe. And so he goes home um, and he, he writes off a couple letters um, to, to let the other municipalities know what's happened. The next day, Servetus is executed, right? It's not until after the execution that you start getting mixed reviews about what Calvin did. Um, you have letters from people like Melanchthon, um, letters from uh, Bollinger, letters from other major Protestants basically telling him, look, you did what you had to do. You did the right thing. You've spared the church from this blight, right? Th there's actually one point where the Catholics come to Geneva and say, look, we've already tried him. Um, we've already sentenced him. We've already burned him in effigy. Just give him over to us and we'll take care of him. And the Genevan council says, no, we're not going to do that because we want to handle it in a fair and appropriate manner within a Protestant, uh, within a Protestant region. Um, and so they were seen as doing everything right. It's only afterwards when the opponents of Calvin start getting a hold of this that you start then getting some of these apocryphal stories of Calvin being the unopposed dictator, of Calvin calling for green wood for the fire. Uh, you start getting some of these just really bizarre stories um, at, kind of after the fact that none of them really, uh, really are, are, are in any way um, uh, historical whatsoever. Um, at the end of the day, there's, there's a Harvard university professor named Ephraim Emerson. He's, he's not a, he's not a, you know, a fan of Calvin by any means. Um, and he says in his, one of his articles, he says, quote, a calmer judgment, however, shows us that seldom, if ever, was a trial for opinions conducted with larger guarantees of fairness, more openly or more in accordance with the principles, which the soundest leaders of thought at the time would have approved. Um, so when, when, when I hear someone like flowers or when I hear someone like, uh, Viola or any, or, or, or uh, you know, Dave Hunt or any of the other major anti-Calvinists or any of these people that are out there and say, oh, well, you know, you have, uh, you know, jihadi Jean and you, you follow John Calvin, the murder and all this kind of stuff. I just know that they've done zero research whatsoever on the history of the event. I mean, again, Calvin not only didn't have an authority, Calvin wasn't even a you know wasn't even a citizen of Geneva whatsoever. There, there's actually an incident within the trial because the libertines were actually trying to kind of fight this battle on a bunch of fronts, um, and and they had Calvin had excommunicated a, a libertine by the name of Berthiler, and the Calvin couldn't even prevent him from coming to communion. Right. The Libertines, the Petit Council actually ordered Calvin on the pain of death to serve communion to an excommunicated member. 
right? So, so the city council was overturning the consistory and saying, Calvin, you don't even have authority as the minister of who to administer the Eucharist to. Uh, that's how much power he had at the time. Uh, thankfully, uh, because Calvin said, look, you're going to have to kill me before I do that. Thankfully, um, they called it off and he didn't actually go through with it. Berthweiler didn't actually approach the table. But he could have, and he would have had the backing of the city council at the time. That's how much power Calvin had at the time. Um, and, and so when you're asking why history matters, it's because when we actually do an objective study of history and we, and we read all of the sources, we're not just reading our favorite, you know, anti-Calvinist blog, who's going to tell us exactly what we want, but we're, we're reading real historians that are, that are doing the hard research and they're reading the city council records um, and they're combing through all the literature and all that, all, all that. It, it's all accessible to us on databases. We can get all of this. Yeah, it is. When I did the research too, I found everything you did, and I don't have access to probably what you have access to. And it wasn't it wasn't difficult to find it, the actual it, historical not, research. It, it, it's really it's not it's not that hard. Some of it, if it's in French, is a little tough. Um, but a lot of it is is just public source information. You you can find it if you go down to your local theological library. You can find a lot of it. A lot of the articles I found are on the database. But if you if you just search the title, you can find them on Google Scholar. Um, but what happens is when you don't do it, you end up having people like Flowers actually slandering a fellow brother, right? Which, which, which is more of my concern, right? I can, I can handle the theological nonsense that Flowers does. Um, and, and I'm not here trying to stand up for Calvin because, you know, I follow Calvin, which is just so misleading of, of, of rhetoric that comes from them. But, but what it does is it, it, it leads you to a position where you're forced to actually slander and talk, you know, and, and to call him a murderer and, and, and to insult people who just theologically agree with him um, as supporting him, right? All, all this kind of stuff. That, that's just that's not in the spirit of Christian charity and Christian love and, and, and brotherliness, right? That, that's, that, that, that's in nowhere in there. Um, and, and Flowers is going to look at it and say, well, you know, Calvin was just arguing with dissenters. Well, no, he was actually arguing with, with one of the most rank heretics um, that was on the scene during that day. It, it, it's why um, Calvin was actually friends with Socinius, right? Um, who was who was also a, a heretic? Um, he he was friends with them. He wrote he wrote very cordial letters because he he saw in Socinius uh, a true a true heart that was just it was wrong, but it was seeking truth. Where whereas um, Servetus was by all accounts a rather intolerable man to be around, very prideful, um, uh, kind of. Um, Sniveling isn't the right word, but but in some cases, like his first book publications, he recanted to save his life in a heartbeat. Um, so he he you know he had no conviction of beliefs, or he'd say whatever he would say for his benefit. Um, and and yet you have Calvin, who who is one of the major reformers, who who is one of the you know we all of us Protestants trace ourselves you know back to the Reformation. And he's one of those people, and, and there's and there's no there's no charity there because there's just there's too much axe grinding for the anti-Calvinist to do um, to be bothered with this type of, of actual objective research. Uh, and, and you know, and, and they miss the, the the simple fact that Servetus was not only 
the first heretic to be executed during Calvin's day. He was the last heretic to be executed during Calvin's day in Geneva, right? So it's not like Calvin was out there executing heretics, even if he could, right? First, he didn't have the authority to execute heretics. That was uh, for the, the, the city council to do. But e even then, it was the only execution for heresy. So when you when you read Flowers' article and he says, you know, oh, there were 139 executions that happened during Calvin's time there. First of all, Calvin had no say in executions. But second of all, only one of those was for heresy. Um, the, the rest of them were for things like adultery. One of the biggest things, actually, there was about 30 or so cases. I think it was 38 cases, and there were about 20-something executions that Calvin mentions, right? There could be more of this, um, were people who were executed for, for witchcraft, right? And you might think, well, witchcraft is, is a heresy trial. It's not, because the reason that they were executed wasn't just because of theological beliefs in witchcraft. It was because they were actually taking blood from the bodies of people who had died from the plague and were spreading it on, on, on the doorknobs of houses in Geneva, right? That's what they were executed for. Um, so it, it's just, it's just not the case that, that Calvin ran this, you know, dictatorial, you know, totalitarian state where whoever disagreed with them, uh, what was just, you know, either executed or banished. It's just historically not the case. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I wanted to just throw in is something I have said in our group, and I'm going to say it here is, you know what, do your research, ladies. Don't just believe whatever person that you're reading. It is so important to do your research. And one reason that I studied it was quite a while ago. I didn't really know much about the story, but somebody posted from just an awful website, I'm not sure I even want to mention it, about this story. And they actually said that, Cal that the council wanted to that the council wanted a more humane way of death, but Calvin said no. I mean, it was just a complete, it was just lies. I mean, what yeah, was in this article. Backwards. Yes, exactly. And I mean, you've probably seen that too, so many misrepresentations. I mean, you touched a little bit about that, but there are a lot of misrepresentations about the story, aren't there? Yeah, there, there's so many apocryphal retellings and, uh, uh, you know, ab about this story. Um, you know, I gave a couple that the, on the day that he was to die, Calvin was in the front of the line calling for, for green wood or wet wood. The idea mm -hmm. is that it would burn, it would burn longer and he'd suffer, suffer longer. It's just not the case. Um, you know, that, that we have, we have no record of that. Um, there, there's other stories, you know, that, that Calvin was, uh, rushed the trial along to, to get him executed, uh, which again, wasn't the case. It was actually about a three and a half month trial, all done uh, under, under um, the, the strict rule of the council. Um, so you just have, you have all of these types of, you have all these types of things. You, you also have, you have other things that, that commonly happen well, and, and, and Flower does this, Flowers does this. You have a lot of people who will take quotes from Calvin and they'll read them completely out of context. Um, or they'll read them, and by, by out of context, I don't just mean out of context within Calvin's writing, because Calvin actually did mean, if Servetus comes to Geneva, 
he's probably not going to walk out of here alive. Um, it didn't mean that Calvin was going to have him beheaded. It did mean probably Calvin would have him reported and we know what would happen or we, we you know, Calvin thought he knew what would happen to, to, to someone like that. Um, but, but you have all these, these, these quotes where Calvin says some pretty hostile things about Servetus and he does. Um, th there's, there's actually an article. Um, I, I didn't really use it in my research cause I didn't find a, I didn't use it in the articles cause I didn't find a relevant place to bring it in, but there's this whole article. It's like 15 pages about the, the, the rhetorical insults back and forth between Calvin and Servetus. Um, they were, they were just viciously brutal to each other in, in the way they talked to each other. We look at it and we say, well, that's just not polite discourse in the 16th century. 100% normal. Uh, it, th this was just the way you did theological disagreements with heretics. I mean, if you read Luther, if you read Melanchthon, if you read Bucer, if you read, if you read, if you read anything, not even about religious topics, this was just the, this was the manner of rhetoric. This was the, 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 the school of rhetoric that was very, very common in, in, in during this period. Um, so it's, it's not that Calvin actually meant, well, you know, I'm going to wring his neck with my bare hands. He didn't actually say that, but, but it's not, it's not that Calvin was like, well, I'm going to make sure he dies or anything like that. It, it, it's a hyperbolic rhetoric basically showing that this guy is the worst of the worst. Um, and that's how rhetoric was used. Um, and so people who read it, um, in kind of ironically, like a woodenly literal way, um, are, are just are just ignoring the historical setting from which these people were writing. Um, and, and I and again, I said this at the very beginning. I think I think Calvin. I, I think it was immoral to execute heretics. Um, but that's because I have the benefit of of our, our our you know our context that we're in today. I can't look at Calvin and say Calvin was Calvin was immoral in that Calvin was somehow unusual um, or that Calvin was doing something um, because of his theological convictions that made it different for him than when everybody else did it, right? I, I can say that it was a problem because I think everybody had a, had a deficient view of the relationship of the church and the state because they just hadn't developed there yet. Um, but that's just, that's very, very different than saying, oh, because Calvin wanted to have him killed, therefore Calvin is a horrible person. Um, well, again, uh, if, you, if you're going to say that, then you basically need to say pretty much everyone in the 15th century or 16th century was a horrible person, um, including the people who would theologically agree with the libertarian free uh, will view of Leighton Flowers. Um, like the Catholics and the Anabaptists. I mean, if you if you add up the body count from the the, the you know the Anabaptists, uh, the rebellion at Munster, and the Inquisition, again, you know Geneva has one. <laughs> uh, here you're getting into the the thousands and thousands. Um, if we're going to make the claim that the theology leads to a body count, it's just going to work. You know, the scalpel is going to cut way deeper the other way against flowers. Yeah, and you know, this is this actually brings up another reason why history is important is because it's important to understand what was going on in the time and that is going to play into certain things that they did. So, I really the last thing I would ask you is because because so many people bring up this situation, should this situation influence how we think about Calvin? In a way it should. 
when when we study when we study the history of Calvin and we see Calvin's interactions, in some way it should help us understand Calvin the man, right? And we I go in this in the article. I didn't touch on it yet here, but we have to remember that before any of this happened, um, even though Calvin would would have been instantly executed had he stepped foot into into Catholic territories he responded to an invitation from Servetus to come and meet with him and basically to talk things over, right? He wanted to go and share the gospel with Servetus, even though it meant risking his life. Um, and Servetus was a no-show, right? So Servetus actually, um, he called him down there, Calvin risked his life uh, and, and Servetus didn't, didn't, didn't show up. Uh, and so when we, when we think about that and we think about how Calvin went to his jail cell and preached the gospel to him all night, hoping for, for his repentance and his conversion, those types of things should tell us about the pastoral heart of Calvin. Um, it doesn't just tell us, um, you know, his view of the relationship of, of the church and state because he thought that the state actually had, had, should use its sword to uphold the, the integrity of the church. But it, it tells us more about you know the man Calvin himself. As we study the history, we realize that Calvin was um, was one who actually raised his hand to volunteer to go and preach the gospel to um, people who were dying in the plague um, in other countries. Um, this is actually at a time towards the end of his life when he had um, when he had actually gained more popularity in Geneva than he had during the time of the Servetus trial. And, and the consistory basically said, "No, you're, you're not allowed to go. We'll send other people. Uh, we can't. We can't lose you here." But he was. But he was willing to basically risk his life to go and and, and spread the gospel. Um, that's the type of Calvin um, that we see when we start picturing these things. And and you know, was Calvin perfect? Absolutely not. Um, I mean, he's he's a he's a fallen human just like the rest of us, which is what his his theological convictions would tell us to think. Um, but but it, it does tell us, in studying the history, it does tell us that the caricature of Calvin presented by these anti-Calvinists is just flat out wrong um, on nearly every single account, except for, you know, the name of the guy that they're talking about. I think that's, I think that's about all they get right, that his name was Calvin and he was in Geneva. That's pretty much it. Well, Tyler, I appreciate so much you coming on. This was just so helpful. I, I think this is going to be extremely helpful. Um, because this is something that people will sometimes come and ask in the group because some people don't, and, well, I would not just say some people, I think a lot of people don't know the real story. And so sometimes their first interaction with any of it comes from somebody online coming and saying, you know, one of those things like, but Kelvin was a murderer or that yeah. sort of thing. And I just think you did such an excellent job of, of describing exactly what happened and, you know, really super, super helpful. I think, I think a lot of people are going to really appreciate this episode. And if well, I, I left a lot, a lot of the, the details out um, that really fill in the story. And the only, the only other thing I would say about it, I know you're wrapping up. The only other thing I would say about it is that um, uh, theologically and logically, even if the anti-Calvinist was right, even if Calvin was the person they said he was, and even if he was the, you know, the unopposed dictator of Geneva and had Servetus killed, that does not undermine the truth uh, of the theological system that, that we think um, Calvin synthesized from the scriptures, right? Because we don't, we don't trace our theology to Calvin. We just think Calvin was one of the best uh, orators uh, of the position. Um, 
So th this is why ad hominems are always false. Even when Flowers thinks it's a valid, which is weird that he thinks it ad hominem, you know, this is a this is a, a valid use of a logical fallacy. Still logic, it's still logically fallacious to say that because this person is a bad person, therefore the theology is bad. Um, that that still is not a valid position. So so I I would encourage everyone look you know read read the articles read read the other sources that you have to present the things you have to say about it, you know make up their own minds make up their own decisions. But even at the end of the day, even if they're not convinced, even if they think Calvin was a schmuck. Um, it in no way should undermine uh, our, our convictions about the doctrines of grace. Right. And one thing we talked about in our episode on Calvinism is there's a lot of misunderstanding in, and for, I mean, the term Calvinism is almost unfortunate because there's an yeah. automatic, automatic assumption that we follow Calvin and we don't. So I, I would say probably the majority of Calvinists would take issue with Calvin on several things. And yep. really, they agree with him on soteriology, but Calvin did not make up this soteriology. You know, in history, it came to be known as Calvinism, but it did not originate with Calvin. Not even in church history did it originate with Calvin. So ultimately, the Word of God is our foundation for truth. I think that's, you know, the most, the most important thing. But one thing, I know that you cite your articles pretty well. I'm going to link them um, on the episode. I will post when you do parts four and five, because I think you've done up to three now, right? Yeah, it's three okay. out of five parts. Of okay, so I'm going to link all of those in the episode. I don't know if there's if there's anything else you think would be helpful to link. Definitely give that to me. I can link it in the resources. And then you do have, you do cite some things where you get some of your information right in the article. And then when you when you do parts four and five, I will I will list them. I will add them to this to the episode notes here too. Awesome. And so thank you so much. Thank you so much for the research you've done. I think you've done an excellent job because when I was I I appreciated so much of what you'd done because when I was researching it, I had a hard time finding somebody who'd put all the information together, at least that I could find. You probably had access to more resources than I did. So I kind of had to find what I could and put it together. So I just so much appreciate the work that you've put into putting this together. I think it'll be helpful for a lot of a lot of people. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. So well, thank you, Tyler. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. It's good being here. Looking for that perfect track for your next evangelism outreach? Look no further. At TrackedPlanet.com, we have solid, biblical tracks that are a breeze to hand out. They are beautifully designed and are the highest quality tracks available. With over 80 different designs in stock and literally hundreds more available by custom order, we're sure to have just the right one for you. You can get any of our items printed with your church or ministry information or have us design a brand new track just for you. We are committed to the solid, biblical message of law to the proud and grace to the humble. Each tract is firm on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the necessity of repentance and faith in salvation. Come check us out at TrackedPlanet.com and make sure you use coupon code BTWN at checkout for 10% off your entire order. That's TRACTPlanet.com, coupon code BTWN. For those of you in 
Southern California and those of you who like to travel to conferences, in October, October 19th through 21st in San Diego is a Reformation conference. It is the Here We Still Stand conference and right close to the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And it includes both Lutheran and Reformed speakers. Some of them are Rod Rosenblatt, Jared Wilson, Elise Fitzpatrick, Dr. Scott Keith, who we've had on the podcast, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery, Chris Rosebro, and several others. And I will be there along with one of the admins from the group will also be there. And it is put on by 1517 Legacy. And for those of you who've listened to the podcast for a while, you heard when I had Ted Rosenblatt, president of 1517, on the podcast. And we've also had, like I mentioned, Dr. Scott Keith and Pastor Brian Thomas. So if you're interested in information about the conference, you can go to herewestillstand.org. I want to thank you guys for joining us today. Just to remind you, I have linked Tyler's articles on this episode on the webpage. So if you go to BibleThumpingWingNet.com, click on Theology Gals, and go to this episode. And I have all of I have his podcast link there, and I also have the three articles that he has released so far on the subject. I know that Ashley and I promised that we would have a, a new segment that we're doing, and sorry to make you wait until next week but we promise next week Ashley will be back and we'll have our new segment that I think you guys will enjoy instead of our question of the week and then lastly if you would like to support us there is a link also everything's on the website a link to our patreon account and I am going to start doing some short little mini podcasts for our supporters so sometime probably in the next couple of weeks but you can either go to patreon and look up theology gals if you want to just support us with a few dollars a month well thank you for joining us and we will see you next week